Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. If you would go ahead with me and turn in your Bibles to Genesis again, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 2, starting at uh, verse 4, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Menelum and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, Lord, that you are our creator, that you are our sustainer, and Lord, that we see your kindness and how you've provided for us and and lord your your power and how you've made us from the very dust of the earth and blessed us with the breath of life lord i praise look at your word we would have understanding and that your spirit would illuminate our minds would convict us of sin lord and we pray these things in jesus name amen so as today is uh, father's day I think it's appropriate that we find ourselves in the early pages of the scriptures and we see the account of when God created the first man, the first father. And in a sense, Adam stands as the father of us all, of, as the father of the human race in a human sense. And God as the creator, um, we see here how he has so amazingly made Adam. And so, in light of Father's Day, I want us to see this morning um, some foundational truths about what it means to be man. 
and specifically in light of Father's Day, um, what it means to be a biblical man. What, what does biblical manhood look like? What are the foundations upon which it is built? And of course, some of these things will apply to the women as well, but uh, specifically this morning looking at manhood and, and even the role of fathers. But before we, we get into to that, um, into those foundational truths, those traits of manhood, of what it means to be a man made by God, um, just a few things to, to point your attention to. Um, here in Genesis 2, it's not so much that, you know, some might look at it and think there's another creation happening separate from Genesis chapter 1, but it's not, it's not that there's another creation happening, but rather what we have, it's as, almost as though as the, the tape is being rewound back to the sixth day, and the lens is being zoomed in on the creative act of God making man and providing for him and establishing his covenant with Adam. And so we have this, this account in, in chapter 2 that gives us more specifics and more details as to how this creation happened. Whereas chapter 1 is more an overall view of, of creation. And you see this shift in verse 4 which is very important to notice that we have this phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And this starts a pattern in Genesis. And I think there's at least 10 times that this phrase is used, this phrase that these are the generations and we will see it in Genesis 6-9 of Noah. We see it in Genesis 10-1 of Noah's sons. These are the generations. And 11 verse 10 of Shem, specifically. We see it in 11 verse 27 of Terah, who is Abraham's father. We see it uh, in chapter 25 verse 12 of Ishmael, who is one of Abraham's sons from Hagar. His, uh, his slave. We see it also in 25.19 of Isaac, who is Abraham's son from his wife Sarah. We see it from, uh, in regards to Esau in, in Genesis 36. One. These are the generations of Esau and uh, one of the sons of Isaac. And then we also see it uh, again of Esau in 26.9 and then in 37.2 we see it of, uh, sorry, I mean, 36, 9 of Esau again. And then um, in 37, verse 2, we see the same phrase. These are the generations um, of Jacob. And so this, this establishes a pattern in Genesis as, we, as, the, as Moses, um, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, gives us the account of these early beginnings of human history and specifically looking at the line of the patriarchs and uh, as that would would lead us ultimately to, to Christ. So this is an important shift in verse 4. And as I said, it, it really does establish a pattern that carries on throughout this book. Something else to note um, before we carry on in our study is there's a change, if you notice at the end of verse 4, in chapter 1 and up until this point, we have seen God referenced as just simply God, which comes from the Hebrew word Elohim. And so we have in the creation account always just God. But here 
in verse 4, for the first time in the Bible, we have the Lord God. And you will see in your Bible that the, the Lord, the word Lord will be all capitals and maybe a little bit different font size. And whenever you see that, you know that in the original language, this is the covenant name of God. And so in the, in the Greek, uh, sorry, in the, in the Hebrew, it's not just Elohim, we have Yahweh, but it is the covenant name of, of God. It is Yahweh or Jehovah, some translations read. And so we have this covenant name of God used here, and it indicates God's special relationship to man. And uh, we will see this name used for God throughout the book of Genesis and into the Old Testament. And so that's important to note. And so um, let us now look at uh, the first mark of what it means to be a man made in God's image. What is the first mark of a godly man? And um, just in light of this creation account of how God made Adam, the first mark is that a godly man is one who is dependent upon God as creator and as sustainer. A godly man is one who is dependent upon God as creator and as sustainer. And if you look um, right here in the, the beginning of this account of how God made Adam, we have this potentially confusing verse in verse 5. It has this description of, of like almost a desert type place. There's no uh, bush in the field. Um, there, there's no plant um, had sprung up yet, we're told, for God had not caused it to rain. Um, but rather we have this this source of water coming up from the ground that is watering. And, um, and we find that it says that there was not yet a man to work the ground. And, and so this might seem like, well, I thought God already created the vegetation and stuff before creating Adam. But again, the, the purpose of chapter 2 is not this, quite the same as chapter 1, which is to give us a, a chronological account of what happened in God's creation, but rather this is to show God's special care, God's special act of creating man. And even in this verse, we have this kind of bookend in light of when sin would come, when the curse would come, because we see that God formed Adam in almost a desert-like place and uh, that he would work the ground. And then God creates this beautiful garden in which he places Adam and, and then later would make his, his wife Eve for him. But then as sin comes in, as rebellion enters, man is cast out of the garden back into a desert place. And so this is almost even a bit of foreshadowing uh, for us into what was going to come of man, that he would not only be cast out of the garden, perhaps uh, in, into this desert place, but that he himself would return back to dust, we see later on in chapter 3. But even as you think about God creating Adam in this desert-like place with the water coming up from the ground, uh, it brought to mind that of, of pottery to me. And, and you know that you a potter will have clay, but it is somewhat moist to be able to form it, to put it on the wheel, to shape it into you know the cup or the jar, whatever the potter is making. And it's almost as though there's this potter's feel that there's this this, this multitude of, of uh, dust, of ground, and there's water coming up. And it is as though God is preparing a potter's uh, wheel to form this man, Adam. And so it is here that we have Adam created 
by God out of the ground we're told that God would form him and then later would breathe life into him. And so we think about uh, what it means to be not only a man, but as I said, human. Um, this points us to our utter dependence upon God, our humility um, that we should have before God because we were created from the dust of the ground. And we see that this imagery of dust is, carry, is, is used often in the scriptures. In fact, dust itself is used over 400 times. Um, this, this kind of imagery of dust and this word dust is used throughout the scriptures. And uh, it should be a symbol of that which is, uh, as James Boyce said, is a symbol of that which is of little worth, of low or humble origin. It reminds us of our humility. It reminds us of our utter dependence upon God. And we see throughout the scriptures that this, this is used even when Abraham in Genesis eighteen twenty seven is interceding on behalf of Sodom that God might spare Sodom. He comes before God and he says that, uh, he says in Genesis eighteen twenty seven Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50. And, and so we see that as Abraham comes to God in prayer, he acknowledges that he is a man of dust, a man of ashes. And it, it keeps Abraham humble as he approaches God, even in prayer. We see it used in 1 Samuel 2.8 when Hannah uh, receives the blessing of a child of Samuel that God answers her prayer. And she describes her previous state of that. Um, she says in 1 Samuel 2.8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And again, this imagery of dust, that which is low, that which is broken, that which is humble and utterly dependent upon God. And we could go on and on, but you know, we see dust in 2 Kings also used to describe the defeat of an army, the defeat of a people. And when the king of Syria came against Jehoaz, we're told that the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing second kings 13 7 so this imagery of dust is, is is used often throughout the scripture but always as a place of humility of lowliness um, uh, of even defeat of poverty and it, it should be a reminder to us that this is from what we are made god made us from the dust and so we should be humble before him we should be dependent upon him and understand our place in creation. And as I said, it's a fascinating study, but if you don't have time to, to get uh, into all of that today. But as men and as, as fathers, and, and, and again, as women as well, when we understand that we have been made by God from the very dust of the earth, um, we should cry out to him in independence and and men you know the best thing that you can do for your wives and for your children is to display a life that is humbly dependent upon God and I think this is most clearly demonstrated to your family um, in how you treat his word how you treat prayer for these things they're, they're like a pressure gauge of our dependence upon God and I know there's a temptation to to throw up our hands often in defeat because we know how short we fall in, in accurately displaying to our family uh, what it means to live dependent upon God, what it means to acknowledge our, hum, our, our humility before God as men of dust. 
but we need to confess our weakness to God and ask him to shape us by his spirit, to help us um, display to our families uh, what it means to be dependent upon the Lord, to be humble before the Lord as our creator and as our sustainer. And I think even about my own, uh, my granddad Hale, Keith Hale, and uh, some of the most vivid memories that I have were that around Christmas time when the family would get together. And, and I don't remember the focus being so much upon the presents, although there were presents involved. Uh, I don't remember the focus being so much upon the food, although we no doubt ate. But rather, I remember my granddad sitting down with the Bible and asking questions and talking about the Word of God and, and in spending time in prayer and spending time singing the praises of God together. And as a young child, that had such an impact on my life. And here I saw a man who was dependent upon God because of how he acted, how he treated God's Word, how he treated um, fellowship around the person of Jesus. And so should our lives seek to emanate that to our children as fathers or if you have grandchildren or children in your life. And again, for, for all of us, for women as well, that your life should display this kind of dependence on God as our creator, as our sustainer, and that we should be humble before him, knowing that we are but dust. And if you turn over just for a moment, you see this perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus. And turn to John 5 just for a moment. And you see Christ as God in flesh come. And yet still, Jesus perfectly shows us as the perfect man what it means to live in dependence upon God. In John 5, 19, we read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows himself all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. You see that Christ walked, although he was God in flesh, he displayed perfect submission, perfect dependence upon God the Father in his earthly ministry, in his life. And so how much more should we be aware of our dependence upon God as our creator, as our sustainer? And so we see this come through not only in the way that God made us from the dust, but also when we see the very source of Adam's life back in Genesis 2, that God had formed him from the dust, shaped him, and yet he would lay there lifeless until God would give him life, would breathe we're told in, in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, that uh, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And now we know that while God also created the animals from the ground, we find later on in uh, chapter 2, we know that God, in a sense, calls them living creatures, but we never see God breathe life into any other creature in this same way. This is unique unto Adam. And it, it reminds us from what we saw in chapter 1, how man alone is made in the image 
of God, after the likeness of God, and is given dominion over the creation. And here it is as though we see when God instilled this image, he made man a living creature that he breathes into him, not just life, but he makes him, uh, gives him a spiritual dimension, uh, the ability to commune with God on a personal level in a, in a covenant relationship. And so we see that not only are we dependent on God and, and our humility before God because we're made of the dust, but we see also our dependence upon God um, as our sustainer because our very breath, our very ability to be alive, the very existence of our souls and, and, and our ability to, to commune with him all come directly from his gift um, that he gave to humanity in creation as he breathed life into them. And what a beautiful, intimate, personal picture of God breathing life into Adam and making him come alive. We see again in scriptures that this is the people are often aware of this, that it is from God that life itself comes, that even Job would say in Job 27, 3, as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, this dependence upon God for life, for breath, and that his own spirit must energize our bodies if we are to live. So we see that, again, as, uh, as, as James Boyce pointed out, that in the creation of Adam, we see this great mysterious creation of, of the coming together of that which is low, of dust, and that which is most high, the very breath of God coming together to make this man, to make the first man, Adam. And as we understand the way in which we are made, we should be uh, very much reminded that we are so dependent upon God. And even when Paul would preach the gospel to the men in Athens, he would remind them in Acts 17, 28, that it is in him that we live and move and have our being, that we are utterly dependent upon God. And so as we think about our own lives, and especially as men, I want to address you specifically this morning, um, are we living dependent upon God? Are we aware of our desperate need for him? Are we acknowledging him as our creator and sustainer? Are we displaying that kind of life to our children? And often a good test that, that I find helps for myself is to ask yourself the question, what is it that makes you feel most secure? Because that's probably where your dependence is also lying. What you are ultimately looking to for sustaining grace, for strength. Is it when your bank account is at a certain point or a certain amount in there? Is it when you're taking all the right vitamins? Is it when you reach a certain position at work? Or maybe if you're noticed by a certain crowd or uh, maybe you get so many likes on your Facebook page. What is it that gives you the sense of security, of, of, uh, of joy. And there's a good chance that it is in those things that we are looking to for our dependence. Ultimately, the answer should be, it is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That ultimately, as we look unto him, we find joy and satisfaction and contentment and assurance. I don't have the reference, but I love the picture in, in towards the end of John when Jesus is about to leave his disciples and he 
breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And we could even go on to think about Pentecost and when the Spirit of God uh, would come upon the church and fill the people of God afresh. And what a beautiful picture of our dependence, not only physically, but spiritually upon God. And do we live in light of that? Because we know that while Adam in this original state without sin would have walked in communion with God, would have lived in, in, in contentment and in dependence upon God, that once sin comes in and man declares himself self-sufficient, that we then want to look to ourselves, that we want to look to other things, to idols for our sense of contentment, for our sense of dependence and assurance. And we will look uh, in a few moments at how Christ uh, ultimately fulfills this need in our lives. But men, we should live as those who are dependent upon God and, and uh, aware that he is our creator and sustainer. And then, so that's the first mark of a biblical man, that he is dependent upon God as creator and sustainer. The second mark of a godly man is one who submits to God as a steward. And I know a few weeks ago we looked at this somewhat, so we'll kind of just look at it briefly this morning, but that God has given us dominion over the creation. And as a result, he has made us his stewards in the creation. You see this as God creates Adam, breathes life into him, creates this beautiful garden, this place for him to live. And then God gives him the command to work and keep it. We find in Genesis 2, 15. And he gives them the responsibility of naming the animals. And Adam is not just given free reign in this place, but he is created as God's steward, as one who is accountable unto God. And I was thinking even, uh, and we've got lots of young ladies in the congregation, and as you are, you know, starting to think maybe about what, what is it that I should look for um, in a potential husband one day, um, let these things be on your mind. Let let you be aware that that. What our world portrays often as a man, you know, the, the Western, the cowboy who gets on his horse and doesn't need anyone. You know, he's got his cigarettes and he rides off into the sunset totally independent, um, not needing anyone, not needing anything. And that's often portrayed as what it means to be a man. But that's not the biblical picture. We see biblically a man as someone who is dependent upon God as creator and sustainer and sees himself as a steward of God. And so even for young ladies especially, these are characteristics that you should be looking for in a potential husband one day. But we think as well this, this uh, reality of Adam being a steward of God, of being uh, under God's authority and going to be accountable to God. We see this in, in some very unique ways that we find in, uh, in verse 9 that God places these two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good, of e the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and so it's as though at the very center of Adam's world, he has this constant reminder that he is dependent upon God to sustain him in the, as he sees the tree of life. And I, I think for often a, a long time, I'd simply thought that, that Adam was created to live on the earth eternally um, and that he was made as immortal. But um, as I understand it more and study this more, it, it seems that God placed this tree of life there because we know that later they would be 
banished from the garden so they couldn't eat of the tree of life. But this, this tree of life would, would be the source of, of sustaining strength, um, uh, giving Adam, Adam and Eve the ability to, to, to live on in the land. And, uh, and perhaps, as uh, some commentators suggest, that Adam wouldn't have had to experience death, but would have rather been simply brought into the presence of God apart from the experience of death but probably not created immortal um, as we sometimes think, but rather he has this picture of this tree of life in which he is dependent to, to take from, to sustain him, to, to nourish his life, give him the ability to live on in the land. But the second tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in which Adam is instructed not to eat, and uh, perhaps in the days to come we can look more at this covenant that God made with Adam, but this tree is a constant reminder to Adam that he is not the ultimate authority, that he is still a man under authority in this garden, that he is still a man who is a steward of God, who will give an account to God, and that he is expected to obey God's command in not eating of this second tree. And so it's a beautiful picture of not only Adam's dependence upon God for life, but also that he is a man under authority um, and who will also give an account as God's steward. And so men, the question again comes to us, are we aware of this reality as God's creatures? And especially as men, do you have a wife? Do you have children? Are you washing them in the word? Are you praying for them? Are you leading them? Are you stewarding them well? Because you will give an account for how we have, how we have stewarded these things entrusted to us by God. Maybe even your workplace to see that as a stewardship from God. Are you laboring there as unto God, unto the glory of Jesus Christ? Because we are not ultimately on our own authority, but we are under God's authority and we will give an account even if you have a, a role to play in the church, are you doing that as unto Christ? And so the two marks of the biblical man are that he is dependent upon God as creator and sustainer, and also that he understands that he is God's steward in all that he does and will give an account to God, even as we see Adam um, was established in, in this garden. And so in closing, and I know we read uh, this passage at the beginning but let's just turn there for a moment because I think it's beautiful to see how Paul brings in this reality of Adam and how he was made from the dust. And even for myself, it's just confirmation because sometimes I, I start to wonder, you know, should we be spending this much time in Genesis? Is this worthwhile study? But then the more I come into the New Testament and read and see how the New Testament authors handled the, the specifically even Genesis, we see that time and time again, Genesis provides foundational truths for us to understand the gospel and to understand especially the person of Jesus. And I think you see that here in 1 Corinthians 15. We read it earlier, so I won't read all of it, just point out a few things. But we see that Paul, um, we started in, in verse 42, he contrasts the natural body and the spiritual body. And then in, in verse uh, 45, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And then Paul goes on to describe the, the glorious day when the trumpet sounds and we will be raised imperishable, that these bodies of dust will give way for the imperishable, for the, this immortality will, will put on immortality. Because of what Christ has done, death will be swallowed up. And we see that Paul at the end in verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that even in our creation, the way that God made us from the dust and breathing life into us, it should ultimately point us to Christ and see how he is so supreme to that of Adam. Christ did not come from the dust as Adam did, but rather, Paul said, he came from heaven. Christ was not breathed life into as Adam was, but what? He tells us that Christ is a life-giving spirit. He is the breath of God. He is the one who gives life. And you can't help but think of uh, even the imagery that Ezekiel uses in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, and, and Ezekiel's to prophesy over them. And, uh, and then the, 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 the bones have flesh come on them, but still there is no life. But then as the breath of God comes upon them, they are raised to life as a vast army, we're told. And what a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we as people of dust, spiritually a desert place, need one to come, not from Adam, not of the dust, but from heaven, not one who is dependent to receive life, but one who can give life. And so Jesus Christ comes as the life-giving spirit. And Jesus perfectly walks in dependence upon his Father, and then Jesus goes to the cross that he might take our punishment upon himself because of our disobedience, because of our heritage from Adam, that he would take that punishment. And then for those who will call upon Jesus, they no longer are identified by their, their father of dust, Adam, but rather they are identified by Christ and have the glorious promise of the resurrection as Christ himself was raised from the dead. And so I pray as men that we can display this kind of dependence upon God as our creator and our sustainer, that we can live as his stewards in all that we have been given to do. And ultimately that all these things would point us to Christ Jesus and, and cause us to worship him, cause us to delight in him as the one who comes to give us life and to give us hope. And so I'll close with a word of prayer, and then maybe we can take some time to uh, do some question and answer since we're a bit smaller uh, group this morning. And so just bow with me, I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we do marvel at, at your creation and how you have made us. Lord, I pray that we would be humble before you, God. And Lord, that we would see Christ as our new Adam, as the new man, not from the dust of the earth, Lord, but from heaven that we can have life spiritually again, that your breath, your spirit would fill us afresh, Lord, and lead us into communion with you and into delighting in you and then walking in obedience 
to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.